Welcome to Love Works with Chris and Karen Conley. This is Karen, and I am in studio with my husband and the lead pastor of High Point Church, Chris. It's a great day and excited to dive in. We've been in a series on the subject of the Holy Spirit, and we are narrowing down. We're kind of digging in deep this podcast and the next specifically on the topic of tongues. Everything's been pretty safe so far, but this one is the topic that most people have questions about. It's the one that when you look at scripture that Paul was teaching, not discounting tongues, but he was needing to teach on the topic of tongues because it was being misused in many regards. So there's controversy around this subject. Well, before we get into all of that, one of the questions as you and I were just preparing for this, what are your fears about teaching this particular topic or this conversation that we're getting ready to have? The obvious fear is that people will listen to this and maybe take something out of context or misunderstand something because there is volumes of research that we've done on this subject. You've referenced this before in a podcast, but I spent three months one summer reading over 20 books from all different types of authors, and we've tried to distill this information into this podcast, and we're going to try today even more, dive into some really difficult issues, but try to make them simple. So when you try to make something simple, you have to leave some context out in order to just keep progressing along. There's a lot of fear here, but here's the deal. Sometimes we don't talk about these subjects because we fear what could go wrong. My greater fear is not asking the question what could go right. And my fear is that we don't talk about it and we neglect all the glory and the goodness of the person of the Holy Spirit, and we neglect everything that God has for us. I simply want what God promises to us in the Holy Spirit through what Scripture says. And I remember when we initially started down this journey, and then even as I've been reviewing for this, Scripture really is clear. We kind of make it kind of nerve-wracking topic, but really when you go in and you look He lays it out exactly with very few questions. So, yeah, there are some areas that obviously are controversial, but Scripture keeps taking us back to, you know what, just do what it says. I'm even telling you what to do in this particular situation or that. And we'll get into all of those details. But I was sharing with some others, you know, I really didn't grow up in a church that talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. And I really didn't have any kind of upbringing with that particular topic, even though I was in church. And so there's lots of misunderstandings for a lot of people. And maybe one of those misunderstanding comes when we talk about spiritual maturity and gifts. So start us out. What really is the relationship between one spiritual maturity and the gifts that they have? Well, it's important to understand that when everybody receives the Holy Spirit, they're spiritually immature. Because you receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. But our gifts oftentimes are associated with God-given talents that he's given us. They're associated with strengths that we have. So an example of this might be that someone has a natural talent to sing. And they become a believer and they're spiritually immature as a believer in the sense that they're a brand new believer and and they're in the journey of growing, but yet they can sing like nothing else. I mean, they have amazing talent and God in his goodness will anoint, he'll give his favor, he'll give his blessing upon someone and use someone in an extraordinary way 
even though they may be young in the faith. So it's important for us not to always equate spiritual maturity with spiritual gifting, that we receive the gifts as babes in Christ, that we have a responsibility to develop those gifts, to nurture those gifts. And there is a relationship between, at times, just the ongoing development and maturity of who we are and how that interacts with our giftedness. But at times, we shouldn't be alarmed that there are times that people can have incredible giftedness, but yet still be very much young in their faith or growing in their faith. It makes me think of when you give a gift to a child, it may be their gift, but they may not really know how to take care of it or use it wisely. I was talking to some moms the other day. We have a daughter who is 14, almost 15, and we're talking about jewelry. And, you know, do you get them a really nice piece of jewelry? Well, you might give them that gift, but they may not be wise enough to know how to take care of it or how to clean it or how to protect it or how not to lose it in the locker room or those kinds of things. And I think the same parallel is there. Sometimes we are given those gifts, the way I see this work out most is another believer looks at somebody else who's less mature in the faith, and they're almost critical of that person of the way that using their gift and to go, you know what, sometimes they have to mature into it. Absolutely. You know, when you go back to that illustration, let's use our daughter, for example, with giving her a gift. She has a jewelry box. You cannot find the jewelry box in her room because it's so messy, right? I mean, we're trying to get her to just be responsible enough to keep her phone on and be available. And so you're right. All of us, there is a relationship between maturity and immaturity and gifts and all of that stuff. But we have to grow into those. But it is possible for our giftedness to be stronger than our maturity. Let me ask you about another misunderstanding when it comes to this topic of tongues. That is the difference of how tongues are used. I know in one of our previous podcasts, we've spent some time in 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 through chapters 14. We've referenced those pretty extensively. But then there's also this whole other world when it comes to tongues mentioned in the book of Acts. So what's really the difference between how we learn of tongues between those two books of the Bible? Well, in the book of Acts, tongues is a known language. You're going to help us see that in just a moment. We really look at these four passages of Scripture in Acts, in Acts chapter 2, chapter 8, chapters 10 and 11, and chapter 19. It's a known language. But then in Corinthians, it's a prayer language. When we go back to Acts as a known language, it was something that God used at Pentecost to launch the church, and then he uses it as a way to validate the movement of God as it spreads. So it's very unique. It was a fulfillment of prophecy, the prophecy of Joel. But yet, here's a mistake. As it begins to fulfill prophecy, the continuation of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't stop there. But in order for the movement of God to continue, the Spirit of God needs to continue to be able to operate in all the giftedness. But this particular giftedness of a known language in the book of Acts had a specific function for a specific point in time. So that begs the question, if you have this distinction between in Acts it being a known language, in First Corinthians being a prayer language, is one right? Is one wrong? Are they both still relevant to us? How do we get our mind around that topic? Yeah, that's tricky. That's where a lot of people have misunderstood, and they've leaned one direction or the other. They've said, okay, well, 
we see that it's a known language in Acts. Therefore, what we see in Corinthians has to be consistent with that. But that's not true. There's a different purpose. There's a different context, okay? What we do see in the book of Acts, if we'll look at it this way, the manifestation of the Spirit's presence in tongues in the book of Acts was a corporate experience. You know, at Pentecost, there's these people from all these different nations coming together, and God gives this manifestation of tongues so that people can speak into these different languages so the gospel can be heard, all right? And that's a corporate experience. Never in the book of Acts is tongues shown to be a individual experience, all right? In Corinthians, tongues is a prayer language. And what we have to understand about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is that it's first and foremost, tongues is addressed to God, and it's a gift to be used in prayer. But tongues and acts are unlike tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 in that unbelievers understood them. In Acts chapter 2, unbelievers understood them. That's a radical difference. Whereas in 1 Corinthians 14, it's a prayer language. It's not intelligible to people outside of interpretation. And let me interrupt you right there. We don't have time in this podcast to really go through verse by verse all four of these passages in the book of Acts that deal with tongues. But I do want us to at least look at one of them because I think this will bring clarity. You just referenced it's a familiar passage if you've been a believer for any length of time. But sometimes we forget those kind of first critical verses. So let me just reference I'm in Acts chapter two, starting in verse one. And let me read a few verses so we get kind of the full picture and then we can make application to what you're talking about. But it says in chapter 2, verse 1 of Acts, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. That's what we usually remember. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So as you read that passage, what you're seeing take place there, tongues in this context, we're dealing with real human languages never learned by the speakers before. It was a gift given to the speakers to speak in the dialect or the language of the people who were there for the purpose of the gospel spreading for the purpose of the birth of the church. So the miracle is they were sitting there asking, how could we hear? How could we hear distinctive utterances in our own dialects? When he talks about the wonders of God in chapter two, verse 11, you didn't read this, but it says, we hear them telling in our own languages, the mighty works of God or the mighty wonders of God. So these wonders of God, they were enunciated in the languages of recognized linguistic groups. So as we think about this, the emphasis in Acts 2 is not on the paradigms for personal experience. We're not gonna try to take this and create a personal experience and say, okay, this is the pattern 
for everyone in the area of tongues going forward. No, it was used to attest the movement of God for the birth of the church. And then when that movement went into the other chapters in chapter 8, chapter 10 and 11, chapter 19, when in those particular ways, they can say, oh, that happened there and that happened here. This is the same movement. It's unified because this gift has shown up and people are able to hear the same thing. And that also is an example, as you were talking about, how in Acts, each of them are a corporate experience. Again, they were all together, that there is not this individual component, which would be this distinction that we also see in 1 Corinthians. So let me just kind of summarize. I would encourage you to go back and look at these passages in more detail so you can see the common themes that we are pulling out. In Acts 2 that I just read, we saw how tongues communicate the praise of God to unbelievers. And then in Acts 8, and then also chapter 10 and 11, there we're seeing the tongues serve the purpose of accrediting new groups to the Jerusalem Jewish Christians. It's affirming this is the same work of God. This is consistent, and we're seeing God grow the church. And then in Acts 19, the tongues serve as the attestation to the Ephesian believers themselves of the gift of the Spirit that transfers them as a group from the old era to the one in which they should be living. So as you talk about the old era to this new era, D.A. Carson is one of the most respected scholars in the evangelical world and really among all denominations. It's important to hear what he has to say about this. He says, some gifts, notably tongues, function and acts in ways particularly related to the inception of the messianic age. But it does not follow that Luke expects them to cease to exist once that period of inception has passed and our new age is underway. For the manifestations of the Spirit are tied to the Spirit, to the Messianic age, to the fulfilling of Old Testament prophecy, not merely to their inception. So he makes a radical statement. He says there is no exegetical warrant for thinking that certain classes of the Spirit's manifestations have ceased to exist, but rather that tongues in the book of Acts is used to attest the birth of the church. And it's a very unique expression of tongues. And then the expression of tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 13 and 14 is different. It's about a prayer language. And he breaks it down this way. Here's four simple ways that he breaks down the difference of tongues and acts and tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. Tongues and acts, he says, occur only in groups. First, it occurs only in groups. Second, They are not said to recur. They are not said to recur. Third, they occur in public. And then fourth, they may serve various purposes of attestation. They are attesting that this is the same gospel. They are attesting that this is the same movement of the birth of the church. And you have to put it in the context of their day and age. This was such a radically new development that the church was being birthed, that it makes sense that God wanted to make sure that people in different parts of that region would understand, oh, this is the same God. This is to unify us, not divide us. It's so radical. It's going from the synagogue to the church. It's Mm -hmm. going from the temple to the church. It is a completely new movement. 
But it's not new in the sense that it's the continuation of Judaism into Christianity. Now, obviously, there's this big misunderstanding there among Jews and Christians about who the Messiah is. But from God's perspective, it is one faith because Christ is the Messiah of both Jews and Christians. So you're exactly right. It was this major birth of this new entity that required something to help them attest and say, no, this is the same movement of God happening in different parts of the country. You've kind of given us the boiled down points of how tongues work in Acts. Is there something similar that we can just kind of put our mind around in terms of how tongues are utilized in First Corinthians? Well, D.A. Carson then gives the parallel of four things in First Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. He says, whereas tongues and acts only occur in groups, that in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, they fall to the individual. So not in groups, but to the individual. Whereas in Acts, they are not said to reoccur, but here in 1 Corinthians, they may be used in private. So in 1 Corinthians, it is a prayer language for your prayer closet. It may be used in private. Now, the third thing says they must be translated if in public. So if you take them out of your prayer closet out of your private prayer life, and you come into the public assembly, then tongues only have value if they are translated in public, because otherwise they are unintelligible. And tongues, as a prayer language, are for personal edification. They cannot be for corporate edification unless they are interpreted. So let's just bring this down to like every day you and me at church. What does all of this mean to your average man or woman who loves God, who's walking into a church? How does this affect their life? There's the intellectual part of it, that it's good to understand God's word. But then in the practical day to day, what does this look like? I'll answer that question in just a moment. But there's one other purpose that D.A. Carson has in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. The last one is, whereas in Acts, it says it may serve various purpose of attestation. Here in 1 Corinthians, it says it serves no purpose of attestation. It is a private prayer language. It is not attesting anything publicly. If it is interpreted publicly, then really it's for the purpose of edification. It's for the purpose of encouragement. It will serve the exact same purpose that prophecy serves in public. Now, when we say prophecy in that particular situation, we're not speaking to end times prophecy. We're speaking to the spontaneous prophecy that occurs when the Holy Spirit brings to my mind something to say to someone for the purpose of encouragement, exhortation, edification. Now, to go back to your question, what does this look like in everyday life? What's it look like in our church, in your church? What does it look like at High Point Church? Well, let me answer that, first of all, by giving an example. A couple years ago, there were one particular Sunday, a group of people we did not know that kind of came into the life of the church. That particular Sunday, there might have been 15, 20 people there. They came down to the first two rows in the life of the church, and they were just a little bit more expressive and into it than maybe the normal high pointer. And hey, if someone wants to raise their hands and we encourage that, we encourage that you have open hands before the Lord, you know, and that you raise clean hands before the Lord. We encourage people to worship, not just with their voice, but to give the appropriate posture before God at times of worship. On this particular day, 
one person literally brought like dancing shoes, like ballet shoes. And during the worship, this person began to kind of twirl and and dance a little bit down toward the front of the church. I could notice that it was distracting to people, right? So one of the ways that you handle things like this at times is I just got up in between songs and I just said to the congregation that we encourage people to participate in worship. And we encourage at times, you know, for there to be a physical expression, whether it be raising your hands, whether it be clapping or or something of that nature. At times, it's, it's appropriate to even bow in worship. But in our expression, we should never be a distraction to others, that we want to worship in such a way that we are expressing ourselves to God, but we're expressing ourselves in a responsible way, responsible to not distract others. So as I was talking to the congregation that day, I was explaining that. And I told them, I said, listen, I need you to know that none of us ever want to be a distraction. And so if any of you are distracted right now, I want you to just kind of put your eyes back on Christ and focus on the worship. And I want you to know that as the pastor of this church, I'm in charge, I'm in control. And if anything becomes distracting or gets out of control, that I'll take care of it. Then I got down off stage and we just politely whispered to this person if we could step to the back and just be able to talk to them a little bit about not being distracting. So in a situation like that, it's important for everything to be done decently and in order. I think it's the last verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that we want things to be done decently and in order. So that wasn't a tongues example, but it's an example of at times that people in their expressiveness of the gifts can allow their expressiveness to not be unified with the body. So what we want to do is we want to always take into consideration that everything is for the edification of the body. It's for the common good of the body. It's unifying to the body. So now let me transition that for just a moment to tongues. How should tongues be handled in the church today? So here's some things that I've written just about our church and how we'll approach it. And here's three principles. Number one, we will not promote tongue speaking in public meetings. So we're not advocating it. We're not saying that tongue speaking is a second blessing that everybody needs to receive. We're saying that we believe people receive all of the Holy Spirit at salvation and that you receive gifts from the Holy Spirit and that you grow in that giftedness throughout your spiritual life. We're not going to promote one gift over other gifts. So we're not promoting tongue speaking in public meetings, but we will not oppose them if they occur. Now, that's making some people probably nervous right Yes, now. yes. I want you to finish that okay. sentence. <laughs> but we will not oppose them if they occur, provided they fall within the Pauline stipulations. What are those stipulations? Chapter 14, verse 27 and 28. It says this, if any speak in a tongue, and remember, we're talking about a private prayer language, Let there only be two or three at most. So again, you're not having this spontaneous speaking in tongues. In speaking in tongues, it's not uncontrollable. When God gives someone a prayer language, they are in control of when they exercise that prayer language. So it's not just this entire group speaking in tongues at one time and nobody knows what's being said. So it says here, let there only be two or three at most. And each in turn, so they're not at the same time, they're each in turn, 
and let someone interpret. Because, see, if they were all at the same time, no one could interpret. And so if there is someone speaking in tongues, then a leader of that congregation needs to ask for interpretation. And if there's not an interpretation, here's what the Scripture says in verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Why? Because the whole issue is, is it intelligible or not? And when it goes from a private prayer language to something that's public, then it must be interpreted. If it's interpreted, then it really becomes the same category as prophecy, and it's for the purpose of encouragement. It's for the purpose of exhortation to comfort someone. So that's the first thing. Here's the second. Those who feel that they have the gift of tongues, they're encouraged to practice it in private. All right? rather than in public assembly where outsiders and insiders might not understand. This is a private prayer language given for the personal edification of the believer. It is not given for the corporate edification unless it is interpreted. I would say more times than not, that really should occur more in like a real intimate, well-known small group setting than a corporate church setting of today. Here's the third way that we handle this. Now, this is critical. This is vitally important to protect the unity of the church. If one begins to use his or her gift to recruit others, and that's where a lot of mistakes are made. I'm so excited about this gift of tongues. I want you to have this gift. God is the one who distributes who has the gifts. We don't recruit. If one begins to use his or her gift to recruit others, or if another attempts to judge one, who exercises the gifts, all right? So not only do we not recruit, but then we don't judge. Just because we don't have that gift doesn't mean, and we may not fully understand it, don't judge. It needs to be in private anyway, not in public, but stop judging. Stop judging what you don't understand. Let's have the same opinion about tongues and spiritual gifts that Paul had. So it says, if another attempts to judge, one who exercises the gifts, then action would be taken immediately by the church leaders to warn against divisiveness and work toward unity. So what we're going to do, just like Paul did, Paul taught 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 to protect the unity of the church. And maturity ultimately means that all of these gifts are exercised in love. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was about. So when we look at this situation, it's vital absolutely vital that we do everything that we can to not look at tongues as something that, oh, that ceased to exist. We don't want it to get messy in here. And so therefore we're not going to deal with it. No, scripture gives us a clear way to validate the gift, but to allow the gift to be used in its proper context and proper manifestation so that there can be personal edification of the individual believer And then the common good of the church and the common edification of the church and the building up the church can occur. And if it occurs in a public setting, there must be interpretation. And when there's interpretation, it falls into the category of prophecy that it's going to encourage or exhort the church. Thank you so much for leading us through that and giving us some parameters. I think, honestly, most Christians just avoid it. And so I hope that this will be something that we want 
all of God, nothing more and nothing less, but exactly what he wants. So I hope this has been as helpful to everyone else as it has been to me. And that brings our time today to a close. If you want more information on this topic or to follow us, please reach out. You can go to chrisconley.net or karenconley.com if you want to follow either our blogs or highpointmemphis.com. But whatever you do, please remember that love God plus love people equals love works. 